Welcome to Going Deep, sports in the 21st century on Blue Ridge Public Radio. I'm Dr. Marsha Mountshoop. And I'm Coach John Shoup. John's coached at the highest levels of the game of football for 26 years. And Marsha is an author, theologian, and minister. And we're glad you've joined us to go deep into some of the most pressing issues of our time. On Going Deep, we go beyond the sound bites and highlight reels. After playing high school football in Kettering, Ohio, our guest, Chris Borland, went on to an All-American career at the University of Wisconsin. Chris was a third-round pick of the 49ers, but before that, from 2009 to 2013, he was in on 420 tackles as a middle linebacker in Madison. As a rookie for the 49ers, he replaced the injured Patrick Willis and in his second career start, checked in with 18 tackles. Later that season, Chris earned NFL Rookie of the Week with 17 tackles in one game and the NFL Rookie of the Month for the month of November. Chris finished his rookie season with over 100 tackles in 2014. By March, of 2015 after his rookie year, Chris Borland had retired from the NFL. Thank you for the kind introduction. I think most folks know me from football um, and from quitting football. Um, The last five, I believe it's been five years since I left the game, um, have included a lot. Um, the spark notes would be advocacy around brain injury, uh, worked at the Carter Center, Jimmy Carter's NGO in Atlanta, um, ran a study at my alma mater, uh, the University of Wisconsin, um, and most recently have, have um, done some media work, um, have a podcast that's due out hopefully this fall, um, like everything it was interrupted by COVID, um, and also a short film unrelated to sports uh, about my hometown of Dayton, Ohio, um, which had a really tumultuous 2019. Um, so I've done a lot, um, haven't really focused um, specifically on one thing. Right now, um, after those media projects are out, I'm currently in school uh, doing a master's program in neuroscience um, at King's College London. Uh, and I teach a professional development course, um, Mindful Leadership, um, that was founded at Google. It's called Search Inside Yourself. Um, so those, those two things occupy most of my time now. Um, Although John knows this, I was due to um, move to Italy uh, in August, and uh, I was going to take some time off, study, do the professional development remotely, and write, Um, but they're not letting Americans into the EU right now, so it's it's back to the drawing board for me. Wow. I mean, there's so much for us to talk about, Um, and as a theologian and pastor, I'm really interested in some of what you just described, but I know John is itching to start with some of the football stuff. So we'll start there. Like you, after the 2015 season, it was for me, I decided to step away from big time football. Not for the same reason you did, but boy, it took every ounce of courage that I had uh, uh, to make such a move. As you were making this decision after the standout rookie campaign, to leave the NFL. The stage is set at the end of 2014. You you had 100 tackles. You're making a lot of noise. 
and then in March decide to retire. Can you take us into your decision-making process in January and February before you came in with the announcement in March of 2015? We left football for different reasons, but I actually think at the core um, there was a similar uh, vein. Um, I think there's a certain degree of whether it's um, your work with amateurism and calling out the, the farce that that is um, or some of the things I've done around brain injury. Um, to me, the shared principle there is the willful ignorance you have to have to operate within that football bubble. Um, the bubble is a hard thing to describe to people that haven't experienced it. Um, it's almost um, you must be willfully ignorant to uh, abide by some of the, the ways that football is done at the highest level. Um, and I certainly was. Um, I think in the media, it's been portrayed as though I had an epiphany um, about brain injury. I, I knew it to be personally true through my experience, um, through some former players that I knew personally. Um, but things were going so well at Wisconsin and with the 49ers, and I was living out a dream that I really put the blinders on. Um, it reached a point with where the research was and with my own history, um, where it was too much to ignore. Um, and I think that's similar between us when you see the disparity and, uh, in the wealth of, of the college game, it just, my conscience was eating at me. Um, at firstly, I was just curious about what I was getting into. Um, I didn't see an actuary for a short run stuffing linebacker who played 10 years in the league. I didn't know what that looked like. Um, so I set about before um, February, January of the off season after my rookie year, I set about learning about it in fall camp as a rookie. Um, and just curious, I didn't, um, I think within that bubble, I was kind of in denial. And I thought there were people that were critical of the game and wanted it to be taken down. And um, I really set out first to learn what I was getting into. Um, and initially to dispel kind of the, the hypercriticism I, I thought was going on about the game. Um, the more I learned about it, really through the six months between August and, and February of 2015, it made me reflect with more candor about my experience. Um, and I've gone to lengths not to, to, to um, oversimplify it. I think it, it was a decision that was unique to me. But when I read these the research, and it was pretty damning um, for former pros. Much of it was conducted on guys that played a wide variety of positions. Um, I, I played one of the most violent, um, and that was my game, too, was, was to really stop the run inside the box. Um, I was a wedge buster in college. I went both ways at a small Catholic school in high school, um, and I had some brain injury at a younger age, too. So I, I think I actually really knew toward the end of the season, I wasn't going to pursue a decade long career. Uh, that was my goal going in, um, had the lofty goal of being a hall of famer, um, really admired guys like Sam Mills and Zach Thomas. And, um, I thought I could, I could have their careers, but as I looked into it and was more honest with my history, um, I couldn't justify continuing. And I was naive to just how white hot the topic was. I didn't intend on being an advocate or anything. It was just what was best for me practically. Having known that it would be, you know, three years or less toward the end of the season, um, it was an agonizing few months after, after the season was over. I went back to Ohio. I think I knew in my heart of hearts that I was done, but it took months to make that phone call and to have that meeting with the 49ers. You know, I was almost sick. Um, I dedicated, uh, 
at least a decade and, and different ways my whole life uh, to fulfilling that dream, um, but knew it was best for me to walk away. So I finally decided on uh, Friday the 13th, March, March 13th, 2015, I, I, <laughs> I, uh, what a day to quit, but, um, you know, called the team, set up a meeting and um, just said it was right for me. And it was, it's been a whirlwind since. courage and there's and even when you know something is the right thing to do there's still a lot of loss and because in a way and again people not in it don't understand but football's a way of life and for us there was just a grieving period even though on some level we were like bye you know this is not good for anybody and we can't in good conscience do it we still grieve and we still do sometimes kind of have a wash of that. So I just really affirm the courage that it took to do what you did. As a run stuffing linebacker, you know, you were at Wisconsin when every day in spring practice, <laughs> an ISO five or six times. So you may have had 120 tackles in your career at Wisconsin. I'll add another thousand from your spring football and shedding blocks. And then in high school, you played both ways as well as a handling fullback in that run stuffing linebacker. One of the arguments that I got in with the powers that be to do was how we practiced. And that it's not necessarily a concussion or even two concussions. It's the cumulative effect, not just from a season, but from a career. You grew up in just in Kettering, Ohio, just outside of Dayton. And I got to believe in Dayton, Ohio, uh, and run stuff uh, <laughs> back uh, driving linebackers as well. And so could you talk about the cumulative versus the one big hit, which I think the NFL kind of dwells on a little bit too much for my taste, and certainly college coaches do. Well, this is, this is the value of going deep. I think if um, you read the headlines, it would be easy as a casual observer to think that it's the big hit. Um, most fans only see football for three hours on a Saturday and Sunday. Um, but you're exactly right. Um, it's the cumulative toll. And even before playing organized football, I, I, I'm one of seven. You grew up in the suburbs of a Rust Belt town. Sorry, Pastor, but we beat the shit out of each other every day. <laughs> I, know, I understand. <laughs> so it's, um, but I, I appreciate kind of scraping beneath the headlines because, um, and humanizing the issue a little bit because um, it was right for me um, uh, as a run-stuffing linebacker with my history, with my childhood, playing all of these sports. And then when you view the issue in that way, it gives you room to address um, some changes. It can be, I'm in a lonely position a lot of times because there are people that are anti-football, grossly speaking, and others that refuse to even acknowledge the issue. But I'm familiar with your work. I think practice can be radically retooled um, from high school through college. They do a good job in the NFL. Um, you hardly hit um, throughout the season and you don't hit in the off season. Um, so I'm, I'm actually pretty optimistic about some solutions. I think there'll be a certain degree of risk uh, in playing the game, but that's true of anything. Though we know that um, 
the barriers to these changes, um, chief among them economic, are pretty hard. At the college level, you're concerned about losing uh, money, or even at the high school level, if there's just a tradition of a way of doing things uh, in places like Dayton or Pittsburgh. You know, we still run the wishbone. Uh, we still fall camp is a month long, and yeah, Ohio has rules, but if you can shirk them to make the boys tougher, you know, it's kind of done that way. I think things are changing for the better. It's uh, there's enough out now that it's really um, you have to have your head buried in the sand. But we used to talk about it even you know in the early 2010s at Wisconsin. Um, we would be full pads on Tuesday of game week and have a practice that, no offense, was more physical than our games against the Indianas and Purdue's that ran run and shoot. Uh, we would bang for hours um, inside run, short distance, third down. Wednesday, we'd be half pack, which means shoulder pads and shorts. It was the same practice. Um, pads on the lower body don't really, you can still do all the same stuff. And then even in, in 2012, um, we would go half pack for the, the start of a Thursday practice, um, which is pretty, I mean, that's not done in a lot of places. Um, so my you know, fellow compadres at linebacker would think this is ridiculous. I'm, I'm sore from a Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday practice going into a game on Saturday. And after your thousandth time fitting the same play, you don't get more proficient at it uh, because you have pads on and you're hitting and you're not, you're tougher. You're not tougher. You go into games with a sore shoulder or neck. Um, and it's just, it's kind of, it's asinine. So I think those things can change and, and doing so you reduce the contact, including bowl prep and off season and fall camp. 10x um, and cumulatively that that would um, you know spare a lot of uh, interior linemen and, and front seven players a lot of contact. Interestingly, when I was in the NFL, I can remember evaluating Ron Dane, and one of the criticisms that I had of Ron was I thought there was too much wear and tear on his body. I didn't feel like players from Wisconsin could make it to their second contract potentially in the NFL because of the way that they, for five years, they beat the living crap out of one another. And when I look at Ron Dane's body, I thought that. And I've thought that with running backs that have come out since from there as well. And it sounds like, I just want our listeners to know that we look at the big hits in the NFL, and certainly I think there's a place for taking out the head-to-head, the helmet-to-helmet contact, and removing all that. From where I sit, that's important but secondary to the cumulative effect. In, in your words, I think, to the, to the hundred you said on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Since I came to high school, we have moved to a spread out system where we throw the ball all over the lot. And I'm being very intentional about that. Primarily, we haven't lost a game, a conference game in three years, but because we don't do Oklahoma anymore. I told the head coach, you can't do that. It's not 1980 anymore. You can't just run ISO, especially with a 14 year old young man. The brand of football that's played is, I think, really important to the level of head trauma. I agree it's entirely. And I think 
our paths kind of intersect here. Uh, when you talk about uh, a running back from Wisconsin taking abuse for a number of years, they're not paid or insured beyond, what, five years for all of that abuse. When we talk about um, the health of an athlete long term, if you retooled it, not only would it be safer for those college and high school athletes, the bulk majority of NFL rosters come from universities that, uh, where the athletes had tremendous market value. Ron Dame won a Heisman, set records. I played with Monte Ball, who has the all-time touchdown leading record in college football history. Um, if those guys took less of a beating uh, and left university with uh, a genuine education and with, for those guys, seven figures, whether or not they could play that second contract, um, they'd be financially secure. So it may disincentivize them from hanging on when they know better later in their NFL career. And I think we're, you know, we're in the middle of 2020. It's the Black Lives Matter movement's top of mind. So many of these athletes come um, from impoverished backgrounds, disproportionately black at the college level. Frankly, and I've had teammates say this, they knew that they were a sacrificial lamb. If I play for a decade, I can uplift my family from poverty for generations. It's disgusting to me that young athletes produce so much revenue um, and don't get a dime. And I think that's, that's where the intersection of health and money come into play. The, the, the frustrating thing is I actually see the solutions as, as simple for both, hit less and give economic equality to people that are producing revenue. The barriers are, are, are enormous. So um, it's a shame, but um, you know, hopefully, and I think things are beginning to move in the right direction for both health and economic justice. The, the, you know, the, the kind of connection between head trauma and um, economic justice. And, you know, football, people, people might realize, again, on the surface, that there's a racialized quality to the way football meets out its benefits and meets out its, um, its liabilities. But I don't know how many people go down deep into why is it? that the bodies of football players are expendable? Well, one is that they're a, very, they're a commodity. And I'm sure you've figured that out about yourself, <laughs> that you were a commodity in a business. And it's, you know, in the work I've done, I've just seen this clear line um, during the history of our country that um, black bodies are more expendable than white bodies. And when we were at Purdue, we, we saw it in, in a really stark way because there was this amazing concussion study there in their engineering department. And we became close friends with, with the people who were doing that study, um, Tom Talavage and Eric Nauman. And we started talking to them and we just, it was just ridiculous. Why is the football team not participating in this study? It could have, number one, it could have broken ground for the game all over the place. We just thought it was like a win-win for everybody. But number two, just in the years we were there, some of the young black men suffered some of the worst hits I've seen. 
And some of these young men were in their 20s. They had come back to college. They were just trying to make a run at it. Same narrative you just described about, I'm going to do this for my family. I'm going to do this for my community. And it got to just, it, it was painful to be a part of that and know that it did not have to be this way. And that when we went to the AD and we went to the head coach, um, it was no sale. They did not want to take that step. And it's just, I guess I wonder if you can comment a little bit on the fact that there are easy solutions, but there's a really disturbing dynamic um, that's a part of American culture and it's, and it's about white supremacy and not really valuing black bodies that, that is a part of the head trauma um, situation. Completely. And I, um, we started off, um, John and I talking about the willful ignorance within that bubble. Um, I understand if you're a coach, um, that singular focus, it's an extremely demanding job. Um, I, I can give some of those guys leeway on maybe not, uh, having the courage that you had, John. Um, but when it comes to administrators, uh, when it comes to people running the university, um, for them to just ignore what's so obvious, um, to me is shameful. I last year made some comments and uh, a documentary about Aaron Hernandez where I talked about Tordal injections. Um, and my freshman year at Wisconsin, just seeing a line of guys. And I wasn't completely naive, but I didn't anticipate it being that stark right in my face before a game. I got a letter for, or an email from Wisconsin's chancellor. Um, there was some blowback from those comments and she issued an internal report. And um, to me, this I'll, I'll forward you the email, but it just represented everything that's wrong with how the college sports ind industry is conducted. This is a brilliant woman. She was uh, Secretary of Commerce under, under Obama. She runs you know, a world-class research university. And I, I don't know whether she thought she was addressing the issue when she um, commissioned this report, um, but it was done internally. So these are people that are on the athletic board that are vested interest directly in football that likely I, it wasn't named who wrote the report. I think it was the team doctor. You're not going to, without a third party, without um, independent people looking into it, that's not going to solve anything. Um, the irony of receiving this email a few weeks ago, um, what, that it was in the midst of a pandemic when they called the football team back to campus um, to practice and guys were beginning to test positive. They wouldn't call the regular student body back. To be ignorant of, of everything that's going on when you've got uh, a majority minority football team called back to campus at a pretty lily white city and campus in, in Madison and the University of Wisconsin. Um, that to me kind of was a microcosm of everything that's wrong um, with not having respect for your uh, young black men that produce millions for you. Uh, just as human beings, there's always enough plausible deniability. You can always justify it. But if you um, really confront it with clear eyes, um, it's just fundamentally wrong. Yeah, and I, I'm glad you made that connection to COVID. I think, again, black bodies are expendable, you know? It's no coincidence that our country opened the economy, started to open the economy back up, right as we were getting data about that black and brown bodies are more disadvantaged by this virus. It's, it's just, it, people don't even realize 
it because it's so much a part of the air we breathe. And a lot of these teams that are bringing back players and it's just that the, their bodies are not as valuable. They're more valuable to take the risk to just so we can see if we can play football than it is to think about their health and safety. I can remember at Purdue, I was called in front of the powers that be, and they actually said to me, John, you're screwing up a pretty good deal for us. You know, you've got a good deal here. And with that, I'm often reminded, I think my favorite quotation is from Upton Sinclair, who says, it's difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on his not understanding it. And it was Marsha during that time. It was our, our starting quarterback, a guy named David Blau, had gotten a bad concussion. He plays for the Lions now. And his mother called me. And she didn't call the head coach. She didn't call the AD. She called me and said, are we doing everything that we can for my son? And I told her, I don't think we are. <laughs> I don't think that we are. And Marsha's the one that said to me, you know, your salary, it's hush money. That's what your salary is. It's hush money, and you just keep taking it. And that's exactly what our head coach and our athletic director at Purdue were saying in, in a different language to me. As a friend of mine, you may know him, uh, John. He played in the 60s and early 70s in the NFL for the, the Cardinals and St. Louis Cardinals at that time. And um, he retired uh, out of protest in part to the Vietnam War, um, but also the brutality of the game. Um, and he wrote a book called Out of Their League, which I read in college. And it was the first critical piece of literature that wasn't romanticized. I think there's like Friday Night Lights and those type of shows have a certain, yeah, you see the rough stuff, but it's almost romantic. This was just a cold, hard look at uh, the college and NFL football industry. And I met David my senior year. He did a talk in Madison. Um, and he, I'll never forget it. He said, the problem is that Dracula runs the blood bank, um, referring to the people that are in charge of athletes health. And, uh, you know, as a junior, when I met him and getting injected and, you know, going out there when I probably shouldn't have, it just um, was a beacon for me. And um, it's good to see, you know, people that pioneered telling those uncomfortable truths in the dark ages, in the 60s and 70s, when no one uh, was talking about the brutality of the game. Yeah, when you think about how our lives turn on people that we meet, um, I think about how meeting Tom Talavage and Eric Nauman that changed our lives. You know, I think about how the NCAA investigation at UNC, that changed our lives. You know, I mean, it just, everything turned from there and we couldn't, we couldn't unsee what we had seen. We couldn't un, unexperience what we had experienced. And it was just, things were never the same after that. And I tried to unsee it. He did. <laughs> and I'm sure you did too. You, you convince yourself. You have to. I mean, to, to go play this game, to go coach this game, you have to convince yourself that things are the way they are. And, and I can remember when they said, you know, from now on, the trainer is going to be in charge of 
whether a player can go back into the game or not. And I can remember a lot of coaches going, oh, well, what if it's fourth down or what? I stood up in the meeting and I said, thank goodness. I don't trust my own judgment. Certainly not in the heat of the battle. I mean, if we're, if we're at Chicago and it's fourth and one and it's the Green Bay Packers, I, I, want, the, who I, I want the A train in the game. And if, if someone's telling me he can't go, that's fine. But I don't trust my own judgment. And players don't trust their own judgment. As you said, there needs to be a, the presidents of schools, the board of trustees at schools. Or someone disinterested. Be. Yeah. You know, not without a dog in the fight. I, I wonder if we could switch gears a little bit because I think we could dig into this hole for, <laughs> for the next four hours. But part of, of your what's compelling about your story is, is how your life has unfolded from the experience of football. You've you know, really experienced um, a healing around justice work, around meditation, so much so that you're really, you know, you're studying, you know, brain science now and you, you have, um, you know, you're, you're investing your resources and your time and in organizations that are helping bring other people to, to these practices that you've discovered. I wonder if you could tell our listeners a little bit about how does the practice of meditation meet you as a, as a former football player with all of these things why has that caught you? Why has that grabbed a hold of you? Well, it, um, it goes back firstly to those relationships, those people you find that change your life. My journey post-football was very iterative. I bounced from an internship to a study to media work. But each of those iterations pivoted um, on a meaningful relationship. So I, when I quit, I, I wasn't entirely sure what I was stepping into. Um, as I said before, it was a little more intense than I anticipated. And I was approached by a thousand people that all had the silver bullet to cure brain injury and a financial stake in doing so. Uh, the first person that I met around addressing brain injury and former NFL players that I felt wasn't trying to sell me a product or sell me on their path um, was a guy by the name of Richie Davidson. Um, he's a researcher at, at Wisconsin, and I was completely naive to him while I was an undergrad, um, but a pretty amazing guy. So uh, Richie's a neuroscientist and um, was one of the early neuroscientists to discover that meditation changes your brain physiologically. Um, so in the late 90s, early 2000s, when imaging started to get more sophisticated, Richie had scanned uh, monks who were lifelong meditators. Um, and for the first time globally, we had a picture of a brain that had been trained at meditation for decades, and it was structurally different, um, which was a, a major breakthrough. I think Richie was one of Time Magazine's most influential people. He's a confidant of the Dalai Lama. This guy was in my backyard when we practiced. His lab was next door, and I'd never met him. So we met uh, a few months after I quit, and he, um, I was getting interested in it. I'd heard about it. I'd been practicing a little bit. But it was such a relief, one, to when you interacted with him, you could tell that he had benefited. Um, he was calm. He had clarity of thought. But he said to me, um, this likely wouldn't fix the problem for former athletes. If you have a pathology, it's not going to change that. And you'll likely still have some concerning symptoms. 
what it may do, he said, was change the relationship between you and what you have that's going on, which was amazing to hear. Um, it, he was so honest and, and frank, but it is a really promising thing. I, I think if you're a former player and you're having issues, um, part of the challenge is that you get entangled with, is this you know, regular mental health concerns? Is this related to brain injury? Um, is it because something's going on in my life? Where I've personally found the value and where we found it in working with former players um, is just settling that storm of secondary and tertiary thoughts and giving you a better relationship with however you're arriving, however you're living. The analogy that's often used is it's a snow globe and life shakes us and the flurries are everywhere. Um, a daily meditative process is just setting it on a flat surface. There'll still be flakes, there'll still be concerns, um, doubts, um, you know, even things like anxiety and depression. But just viewing that from an objective third party uh, perspective, which is what medita meditation gives you, provides some peace of mind. approaching me with their panaceas because I, I knew them to be BS. Um, so to have something that was practically uh, beneficial, wasn't oversold and free, it's free to sit and breathe and, and, you know, watch a YouTube video and learn how to do it. We've helped, you know, directly dozens and maybe through who they've told hundreds uh, of men, this is something that may help and it's small, but non-trivial. Yeah, that's, it's so great. And I, you know, I've probably read some of his articles about <laughs> brain imaging because meditation and um, centering prayer is a big part of, you know, a lot of my work in theology is around embodiment. And so um, the ability to be present in one's body, to, the ability to um, not vacate your body when you have pain or you're suffering, but to be present and, like you said, change your relationship to suffering. It's an ancient wisdom around that life involves suffering. And if we can change our relationship to that suffering, um, the suffering doesn't beget, have to beget more and more suffering. Um, and it's just a beautiful way to kind of meet people who are in pain and say, let's, let's breathe together. Let's, let's, let's find a, a peace, a deep peace together. Um, I wonder if you could say, just talk a little bit about what have what have been some of the obstacles that you have encountered when you introduce this very different way of being in your body to football players. A great question. Um, in 2017, we ran a study with 17 former NFL and college players at Richie's Lab in Madison, and you hit it on the head. The, the, the thing that was most interesting, had the highest uh, potential for growth, but was also a huge hurdle, was embodiment. Um, there's kind of a paradox with high-level athletes, particularly in a violent sport, is that you need to be attuned with your body, but inevitably you'll get hurt. You need to play hurt. So you also need to suppress what's going on. And we had men in, in this study that had forgotten that they'd had serious trauma, um, torn ligaments, broken bones. 
because they'd suppressed it in some cases for decades. Um, and it can be, although it's potentially beneficial, it can be a really hard thing to sit there and realize that in five minutes, if you actually pay attention to your knee, it's an excruciating pain all day, every day. With practice, you get a better relationship with that. So it's not when you feel the pain, you don't immediately tell that story of, I can't believe that trainer put me back in. I used to have an addiction to painkillers. I limp now. I can't do this. I can't do that. But you just sit with the pain. Um, and in just eight weeks with a number of guys, we saw a breakthrough in just that. And inevitably, it's emotional. You've been denying a part of yourself for years. And finally, you can accept the fact that I, I am hurting. Um, it doesn't have to compound. I can manage this, um, but it needs to be addressed. So it was pretty moving. One other thing that I think was, was really beneficial, and this is um, something that I really wanted for the study, was not only to meet weekly for an hour and a half or two hours, but then to have uh, a meal afterwards. Coming from that bubble, there's not a lot of people that can relate to the experience of being a pro athlete. Um, so it can be lonely. Um, and the times where these men are in crowds, they're almost like a circus act. They're at an autograph signing, they're at an appearance. It's not an interaction where two people are meeting on common ground. Um, even if it is adulation, it's a commodification. So you're not a person first. And there's a tremendous value for anyone, but I think particularly for team sport athletes to med meditate uh, in a community. And I think the practices are great, but that hour and sometimes, you know, it would be four hours uh, of hanging out, sharing stories, uh, getting things off your chest was really valuable for the men that went through that study. That's beautiful. It really is. I mean, because what it, what it is, is it's really, it's really healing to not only change your relationship to your body, but change your relationship to the people around you to really have substantive kind of shared vulnerability and be able to be yourself and accepted for that. I know to us, one of the most heartbreaking breaking things of leaving football was leaving those relationships with players because so many of them are just amazing, complicated people. And they never got to be those whole people that loved art um, or wrote poetry or, or were great actors or whatever. Um, they just had to be something else in football. And it's just such a beautiful healing the way you have, I don't know, created and, and created a container for to really address some of the hardest parts of surviving football, really, wouldn't you say? <laughs> I, would, I remember the first time we met was here in Western North Carolina, and uh, you invited me to uh, the bike farm where injured uh, veterans would go on bike rides with a companion. Uh, and you were serving as one of the companions, I think. And I remember coming home that night. We had a meal, and it was the first time we met. And as a group, we all did a breathing exercise as well, which is meditation, you know. And I remember coming home. I remember trying to explain it to Marsha that it was like he's he was the toughest middle linebacker <laughs> that I knew in the mold of a Sam Mills, and yet 
it was one of the most comforting experiences. There was like this, uh, what's the word? Opposite, you know. Uh, Binary. Uh, yeah, 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 that I wasn't expecting in our first uh, meeting. And in fact, the next day in class, I'm a world history teacher. I remember the next day in class, I said to some of the players that were in my first period, hey, you know that guy in Dos Equis that's called the most interesting man in the world? <laughs> I said, I just met a guy that might be really the most interesting <laughs> man in the world last night. And I told him, you know, uh, 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 about that shared experience. And that shared experience was really something that, I don't know, for maybe the first couple moments, I was like, what are we doing? You know? And by the end of it, I was like, yeah, this is what we're doing, you know? And it's almost as Marcia said, you, you have to be in a place that like uh, allows it, where there's a meal, where there's not a coach who's looking at his watch and telling you. And you not only did that breathing exercise and that meditation with all of us, but you created a space where that could be done. And boy, I think that could be beneficial in the world of big time sports. Not, well, it is, not contrary to it. Not contrary at all. At some point, we, whether it was tradition or masculinity, we thought that, you know, being calm or sensitive was contra to physicality. Some of the fiercest warriors in the history of the world had contemplative practices. Um, the samurai. I'm Scottish, so I, I love the uh, the warrior poet archetype. But they're not, and I think you've probably met these guys within football. A lot of the toughest guys I've met, Troy Palomalu, uh, Chris Spielman, they don't need to remind you how tough they are, how physical they are. That's They're comfortable with themselves. And... Um, I think it's changing for the better. We've introduced these practices uh, at Michigan uh, with Coach Harbaugh. Uh, my brother was teaching at West Point, and we did some uh, some of these practices with their cadets, um, and at Wisconsin, uh, which they just hired the nation's first full-time meditation coach. Um, the guy that ran our study is now um, works for the athletic department. I'm a little conflicted on some of those. It's complicated within – the meditation world, you don't want it to be tied too strictly to performance um, because you, then you do have the coach. And there's been instances of this. It's like, hey, go get your meditation in real quick, which isn't what, uh, how it should be done. But I do think it's promising. We don't have to be amped up all the time. Uh, you're going to feel fresh, more refreshed and be able to play with more intensity if you're centered. And that's something I don't think I loved about middle linebacker that I don't think fans understand is they think it's like the Ray Lewis going nuts all the time. But it's this balance between uh, intensity and composure because you have to analyze and call plays and get people in position. Um, so you really are in the zone. And that's the common language between athletics and meditation. It's like every athlete knows what it's like when things slow down, when you're comfortable with your ability, when you're not overreaching. And athletes make great meditators. Um, it is called a practice after all. Um, and they're used to doing something every day uh, and having faith that in the long term they'll see benefits. And um, I'm, I'm optimistic. Uh, the, the meditation coach, his name's Chad McGeehee, and he's phenomenal. So he's worked with uh, every athlete at Wisconsin. And that's um, my personal conflicts aside. It's, it's, I wish I'd have had that when I was an undergrad. 
Can you tell our listeners if they want to learn more about this, um, what you're doing, is there a website? Is there somewhere they can go to learn more about it? Absolutely. Um, a great place to start would be uh, the Center for Healthy Minds at Wisconsin, which the website is centerhealthyminds.org. Richie uh, has done incredible work for decades now. All of their research is up there um, and some of their programs. Um, they've recently developed an app. Uh, it's called Healthy Minds, and uh, I'm doing a voiceover for it next week, so hopefully uh, that'll be up before too long. And there's tons of resources if people are just interested in, in meditating. Um, Headspace, Calm, 10% Happier is both a podcast and an app. The podcast is great. It serves as a Rolodex of who's who in the meditation world, and it hits on every milieu from business to nonprofit work to sports. That's a great place to start if you're interested in learning more, 10% happier. Great. I know that that's helpful because there's so much out there that is not, it's, it's more superficial, kind of like hot yoga or something. <laughs> it's, the fa it's a fad, but it's not really the kind of transformative practice that it can be, um, that yoga actually is, and meditation can be the same way, packaged in a nice little American market market tool, or not. The criticism is Mick mindfulness. Um, you know, <laughs> be more productive at work and greater output, and yeah. have better sex and all this nonsense. Yeah, 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 but, exactly. <laughs> well, it's like you said. I, I can certainly see a coach saying, "Come on, go get your meditation in and hustle out here." Oh, you know? heck yeah! Go through the drive-through. Yeah. Well, well, importantly, when we before we introduced it to athletes, we thought it pivotal to introduce it to coaches first, um, so they knew what it was. Um, and it's it, it was hit or miss. They had some old timers that never showed up, um, but some coaches really took to it. And when you're at the office until one a.m. every every night and uh, game planning around the clock and on the road recruiting, a few have found it really beneficial. And when they really understand what it is, uh, there's less of this and more take your time, do what you need to do, which is, which is beautiful. Yeah, it is. Amen. It is. I find it interesting that I think soon after you retired from football, you applied for a 10-week unpaid internship and got it uh, with Jimmy and Rosalind Carter, can you talk about that and what that internship was? Talk about from going from the NFL to an unpaid internship. <laughs> really something. Another one of those moments where you meet someone that changes your life. I did about a year of advocacy, a number of small things. Um, and then I, I moved from San Francisco. Um, I was going to spend a month and back home and figure my life out. And as I was driving across the country, I just happened to listen um, to one of President Carter's books on tape uh, about the work that he's done at the Carter Center, um, which was founded a few years after his presidency. And it's astonishing what they've accomplished. Um, they uh, monitor elections all over the world. Uh, they nearly successfully eradicated uh, a disease from the planet. Uh, there'd been uh, tens of millions of cases of guinea worm, this disastrous disease in Africa. Uh, in the Carter Center, basically by themselves with the help of a few people in Africa, got it down to a number of cases they could count. Um, so the joke at the Carter Center is that President Carter used the presidency as a stepping stone to something bigger. 
just incredibly inspiring people. So I, I listened to the book. Um, I wasn't sure what I was going to do next. And I just cold called the director and wrote a letter to the director of the internship program and said, I'd, I'd like to check this out. I, I'm not pressed for time or money and um, I'd love to do this. I got accepted and um, it was really life-changing. There's a moment uh, each internship where uh, the Carters, President and Mrs. Carter, take the interns to Plains, Georgia, where President Carter grew up and was actually the campaign headquarters uh, for his uh, presidential campaign, which is absurd because it's a town of 2,000 people. Um, the actual headquarters was picked because it was the only building with an indoor bathroom. But um, while on that trip, you know, President Carter, um, you know, I don't treat any human being as an idol, but he's as close to like a fully formed person as I've ever met, and Mrs. Carter too. Um, you know, he sat with all the interns. He was 91 at the time, he took on a tour of his childhood home, um, gave a talk, taught Sunday school at his, the church that um, he teaches Sunday school at every, every Sunday. And it was inspiring. I think there's a moment that sticks out from that trip to Plains. We were on the bus to go back to Atlanta, where the Carter Center is headquartered. And I'd been on, you know, a thousand bus rides between high school and college and pro football. And John, as you know, on those bus rides, there's one of two sounds going on. There's either the den of excited, loud crackles, joking. It's also often kind of crass. Or guys are tuned in with their headphones on and it's dead silent. And when I'm sitting on the bus waiting to get back to Atlanta, it was neither of those. It was just this um, like bubbling conversation of people really interested in what they were working on. Really talented. I was 24, so I was the oldest. Most kids were about to be seniors, but from all over the country and world at really great universities. I just love the tenor of that conversation. I remember sitting on that bus, like this is unlike the thousand bus, bus rides I've taken and inspiring. There's only, I think, 200 uh, full-time employees at the Carter Center in Atlanta and at their remote locations worldwide, um, which means they use interns as employees, really. There's young people doing substantive work. So when you, you know, when a 20-year-old girl from Spain is working on a technology to help Syrian refugees flee based off geolocation, it kind of puts, like, things in perspective. That's pretty amazing. Um, and it was fun to be immersed in that environment for a few months. I've often thought to myself, evenings after a game, who really gives a crap if we were only four of 12 on third down conversions? You know, there's more to this world. And I, I completely catch your drift on what that bus ride felt like. Yeah. So there was another event in your life that really changed things for you, and that was the shooting in Dayton in 2019 and that also kind of your responsiveness to that has kind of also taken your life in a, in a different direction or not a different direction but enhanced kind of some of your clarity around what you're doing the shooting in dayton uh, on august 4th 2019 was the third in 48 hours so there was el paso gilroy and then dayton and um the fall, so it happened early Sunday morning. Um, the following Saturday, I was going to a wedding in Santa Cruz. I was living in LA at the time. 
and um, the person getting married was from Dayton, uh, and they were marrying someone from El Paso. And to get to Santa Cruz from LA, you had to go through Gilroy. All three shootings, and I'm driving through, and everyone at the wedding is like holding on to that also. And I just didn't, you know, I wanted to do something. I don't didn't have a firm grip on my influence or what could be done. And I decided the avenue I took was to reach out to the Catholic Church. Um, I grew up in the church. I'd read, I was curious because when I see these shootings, um, I don't see a strong response from the Catholic Church, and particularly the Archdiocese of Cincinnati, which is, which is pretty conservative. And it just seems, um, you know, if you're going to proclaim to be pro-life, um, massac- you know, weekly massacres would be a good place to have be bold in your leadership. So I, I didn't see anything. You know, I, they, Archdiocese released a statement. Uh, it was basically thoughts and prayers. Um, the Archbishop uh, went on a three-week, three-week vacation um, after, after the shooting. Um, I think a leader should have been on the street in Dayton. Um, so I, I wrote them a letter, uh, a little scathing, but I felt fair, um, about just step into what you proclaim to be. Um, there's a lot of, you know, Dayton's fallen on hard times before the shooting. One export that uh, has never waned is athletes. Lots of great athletes from Dayton, Cincinnati, um, the Greater Catholic League. Many have come from that league. And I knew a bunch of these guys and said we could do something to maybe move the needle a little bit. So it manifested as a peace festival, a three-day um, event in Dayton where we talked about racism, mental health, and gun violence. Proud of what we could accomplish in five weeks. Uh, we had people come in from across the country, uh, fairly well attended. And I thought it was just right. We, we, we were able to talk about serious issues, but also we had things like meditation and yoga and just simple things like a cookout and yard games uh, because I think there was some fatigue. Um, this is a lot, but, but the shooting happened six weeks after a KKK rally came through Dayton that they feared to be the next Charlottesville city spent a lot, the poor city that spent a lot of money um, for security and it wound up being nine yahoos from Indiana. Um, and the day before that rally, 15 tornadoes tore through town. Um, so it was a devastating six weeks um, against the backdrop of a city that was already reeling. Um, so I think people were, were tired. Um, so we tried to do something for them that was um, substantive, but just a relief and, and some catharsis too. Um, it will be annual. Uh, I've got it funded in a way where we can do something um, every fall. Um, this year will be virtual. We have some uh, writing programs for kids in the area. Um, uh, this year we're going to focus, and I'm planning it right now, uh, on voter registration. Like many cities, Dayton's horribly segregated. The turnout for African Americans is abysmal, um, understandably so in some ways. So uh, we're trying in my home district in Dayton, uh, District 10, to try to get people to turn out and vote. That's great. That, that's actually the next question I was going to ask you, um, and maybe this can kind of be our, unless you have another one, but kind of a culminating thing. We're in a moment right now. I mean, we're just in a, a, a moment where, I mean, in my, in my kind of faith language, I say the spirit is moving. Like there's just this massive movement of transformation right now. There's Black Lives Matter and the way that COVID has, if anybody had any questions <laughs> about systemic racism or 
you know, the cost to our society of everybody not having health care and the cost of voter suppression. I mean, really, voter suppression has cost people their lives because of because elections matter. And there are lots of ways voter suppression costs people their lives. But in terms of your inner yearning for, it sounds like the, the kind of common thread is, is healing and justice, that, that you're, you're kind of drawn in that direction. Where, where are you feeling pulled right now with this kind of massive twin pandemic thing that's just coming to, coming to a head also with the election coming up? Uh, it's been a difficult 2020 for me personally. It's overwhelming. I don't know, um, you know, where realistically I can help and, you know, do have to pay the bills and, and uh, eat. So, um, you know, money isn't, uh, I have to think about that, but I struggle with it. One thing I think is important, I do think we're in a moment. Um, there's a lot of energy. There's a lot of movement. Um, I think it's important to be strategic about it. It would be a shame if after the election and after the next 10 dozen dumb things that Trump does, if all that comes from this is kind of token solidarity. I I am wary about it being co-opted. I I think, you know, it's great to see athletes, you know, kneel or, or protest or, but if things don't structurally change, it's just, it's cheerleading. That's one thing I, I tried to focus on with the Peace Festival is to actually make it, you know, more people turn out to vote in District 10. It's put, inject money into an educational effort on the West side, which is the disenfranchised side of the city. Um, things that actually change lives, even if it's only a few, because it's hard to tell how much of this movement is substantive. And one of the things with white privilege is as a you know, token white liberal, like I, I can say the right thing, do the right thing, but I can tap my helmet and take plays off when I, when I don't have to. So to stay engaged and to be strategic and smart about where you can help, which takes work, um, takes some self-awareness. I, I think I cringe when I see white, you know, quote unquote allies uh, telling people within the Black Lives Matter movement what's best for them. I think it's important to listen and just be a tool, be of use. And um, I try to do that. I fail often, but um, know a lot of great people I get to work with here in Dayton. So. I'll continue to do that. Well, I have a feeling that um, that whatever you do and wherever you are, it's going to be something that has a healing impact on the people. It's been a great gift to spend this time with you. You've been listening to Going Deep, sports in the 21st century from the studios of Blue Ridge Public Radio, NPR for Western North Carolina. Tell us what you think of the show by emailing us at goingdeep at bpr.org. And make sure you like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Shoops Going Deep.